Often we read and reflect on the Bible only in light of our individual personal relationships with God. But the Bible speaks as well about the kings of nations and the rulers of human societies. And so as we continue our series in the book of Proverbs and we consider this morning what the book of Proverbs has to say about civil leaders, I'm sorry to tell you that this book will not tell us exactly whom we should vote for in November of 2024. Instead, it will show us what God values and prioritizes in civil leaders so that we might value and prioritize the same things. In particular, Proverbs will show us that the thing which brings the greatest blessing to a nation is wisdom in its highest office. And such wisdom is demonstrated in three areas, as you can now see on your outlines. A wise ruler understands the responsibility of leadership. A wise ruler demonstrates the ethics of wisdom and remains sober with power. We desperately ought to be looking for and evaluating political candidates on the basis of such wisdom. And if the options on the ballot are thin, that's not something to lose hope over because though we need a wise king now more than ever, such a king is available to us if we would only trust him. That's where we're heading this morning. Let me pray once again for our time in God's word. Lord, please open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. Help us to see and understand your will for our rulers. And we ask that you would help us to play the part you would have us play in securing such leadership over us in society, in the government, and also in the church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, the ruler we most need first understands the responsibility of leadership. This is something we must not take for granted in our leaders. Not every candidate can really handle the responsibility that comes with great power. And there are two particular responsibilities for rulers in the book of Proverbs which are to represent God to the people and to cast out evil. Okay, let me hit those two things. First, to represent God to the people. Look at Proverbs chapter 16, verses 10 and 11. The divine verdict is in the words of the king. His pronouncements must not act treacherously against justice. Honest scales and balances are from the Lord. All the weights in the bag are his handiwork. Now that first line of verse 10 sounds quite un-American, doesn't it? And, and I'm showing this to you in the net Bible translation because it speaks quite plainly using the term the divine verdict in the words of the king. The ESV translation that we normally use has the term oracle 
there, which means the same thing, but it's a much less common word today. I wanted to give you more plain language. The divine verdict. Now, is this verse establishing what medieval thinkers called the divine right of kings? Which is the philosophy that all monarchs receive their authority to rule directly from God and not from the people. Is that what this means? That the divine verdict is in the the words of the king. I don't think that's what this verse is saying. And the history of Christian thought bears this out because that way of thinking was done away with in the English-speaking world with the Magna Carta in the 13th century. But the bigger reason, other than just the history of Christian philosophy, political philosophy, the bigger reason why I don't think this is saying this is because of the context of the book of Proverbs. We ought to remember that the book of Proverbs was composed within the context of God's special relationship with ancient Israel. It is a book written by the son of David, the king of Israel. That's how he identified himself in the first verse of this book. And it's a book written for the people of Israel, especially for those among their society preparing to take up the mantle of leadership in the next generation. So the king here is primarily the king of Israel. When he speaks of him, he's speaking of the son of David, the one with whom God had made a covenant, a binding agreement that his kingdom would last forever. And he says here that the divine verdict is on his lips. He, the son of David, speaks for God insofar as he remains faithful to the covenant with God, as long as he worships God and keeps his command, because that covenant came with a threat. If you don't obey my covenant, O king, I will remove your throne and send the people into exile. And that follows through in the Old Testament. And though this verse speaks directly about the king of Israel and other verses that speak about the king, we ought to have the king of Israel in mind. I do want to clarify that it still has implications for all other earthly rulers. There's primary and secondary uh, meanings here, audiences. We can't say that every ruler on earth speaks the divine verdict the same way that the son of David in Israel does, but we can still learn something about how civil authority ought to work. Which is this, that no ruler or government official ever has absolute authority. There is a divinity, there is a God over them. And and all rulers and government officials in some sense represent God to the people. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 13, straight out, where he calls all political rulers God's servants or God's deacons. A ruler who is in relationship with the true God will recognize his or her responsibility to channel justice from God out to the people. And this involves the ruler's pronouncements, 
or executive orders in verse 10 here of chapter 16. And in verse 11, it involves the regulation of the markets, the scales and balances in the marketplace. So a ruler or a lawmaker who makes wicked laws that oppose God's righteous commands is a faithless ruler who acts treacherously against justice. That is a ruler not fit for the position. That includes laws that reject God's design for marriage. Laws that reject God's creation of sex and sexuality. Laws that withhold inalienable rights from people of certain races or classes or genders, including preborn infants and the elderly. Friends, the ruler we most need is a king in healthy relationship with God, representing God to the people and channeling the righteousness and justice of God to all the people. Now, such a king is by no means a pushover. The way we might think of some religious fanatics who come into power. Such a king is not a pushover or a political plaything to be manipulated by cartels of evil in the halls of power. And so this leads us to the second responsibility of rulers, which is to cast out evil. Look at chapter 20, verse 8. A king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. Now, to understand this, I need to explain the metaphor of winnowing. It comes from the grain harvest, where the harvested grain is spread out in an open space, perhaps on a broad cloth, and then it's repeatedly thrown up in the air so that the inedible dirt and dust, all the stuff called the chaff, which is lighter than the edible grains, will get blown away by the wind. They harvest it, they toss it up in the air repeatedly, the lighter stuff that you can't eat gets blown away. That's winnowing the grain. Winnowing is a process of purifying the grain and getting rid of the junk you can't eat. And that's what a wise king does with evil in his realm. And he does it simply by keeping his eyes open he does it with his eyes so the king we most need understands the responsibility of leadership and as he executes this responsibility faithfully evil men and women tremble they fear the wise king's gaze because under his gaze they are found out called out, and whenever necessary, thrown out. It's really important to understand this in our day because there are some foolish ideas going around that treat power itself as a bad thing. Such that if someone has power or privilege... That is something of which they must feel guilty and repent. 
If someone has power or authority over another person, the exercise of such power is often automatically seen as something oppressive. But it is crucial for us to learn from the Bible that power itself is not oppressive. People are. Power in the hands of a wicked person is an oppressive burden on the people. But power in the hands of a righteous person is a great joy to the people because the wise king winnows evil with his eyes. So we ought to pray for and elect leaders who understand the responsibility of leadership, the responsibility to represent God and to cast out evil. But even more, we need a wise king who lives in unbroken relationship with God. Because in order to execute power in the right way, the ruler we most need is a ruler who, point number two, demonstrates the ethics of wisdom. A ruler who demonstrates the ethics of wisdom. Now, I might like the politics or the philosophy of a candidate, but if he or she is not a person of ethics and integrity, we are not really getting anywhere. So what are the ethics of wisdom for a ruler? First, a ruler must listen to wisdom and not to the folly of their own heart. Look at chapter 8 where wisdom, personified in the text as a woman, says, By me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule and nobles, all who judge. Excuse me, all who govern justly. Friends, our only hope for justice is for our rulers to listen to wisdom, to God's wisdom. Second here, a ruler must understand the difference between good and evil. A ruler must understand the difference between good and evil. They define righteousness the way God defines it, and they don't make up their own definitions. Look at chapter 16, verses 12 and 13. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, And he loves him who speaks what is right. So when a ruler does what God considers evil, it is not only inappropriate or unprofessional, but it is despicable. It's an abomination. It is something that God hates and God's people ought to hate. So a wise ruler will actually understand the difference between good and evil the way God defines it. And he will delight in righteousness and hate evil. The third ethic here is that a wise ruler reflects the loving character of God. God revealed himself to Israel as a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Those were buzzwords from the book of Exodus when God reveals himself on the mountain. And so look at chapter 20, verse 28. Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king. And by steadfast love, his throne is upheld. So 
We need rulers who listen to wisdom and not their own hearts. We need rulers who grasp the difference between right and wrong and they delight in the right and they hate the wrong the way God defines these things. And we need rulers who serve their people and not themselves out of love and faithfulness toward God and neighbor. Friends, for generations in our country, we've tried an experiment of secularism which has not worked. The founders of our country worked hard to keep the government out of the church's business. And that's since been flipped around to keep the church out of the government's business. But when you try to create a public space, a public sphere with no God, you actually lose the ability to distinguish between right and wrong, between reality and fantasy, between true and false. And we are reaping the fruits of this approach in the disintegration of morals and reality in our culture today. So we must pray and work toward the end of electing rulers who demonstrate the ethics of God's wisdom. But there's even more to this. We need to get personal because the ruler's personal character matters. The well-being of a people is in part attached to the character of their rulers, not just to their skills or their ability to do the job. It's also attached to their personal lives, their beliefs, and their morals. Look at chapter 28, verse 15. Like a roaring lion... Or a charging bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. And I don't think you need me to take you on a tour of the ancient Middle East to understand these metaphors. (laughs) Wicked rulers are like ravenous predators causing the people to groan. Look at chapter 29 verse 2. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. So friends, wise rulers must have a personal character of godliness. Wicked people in authority make the people groan. And not only that, not only the ruler's personal character, but wise rulers will also surround themselves with advisors and cabinet members who themselves demonstrate a personal character of godliness. Wise rulers do not appoint their officials and their lieutenants simply to fill quotas based on appearances or on ideologies or as favors to people. They appoint people of character. Look at chapter 25, verses 4 and 5. Take away the dross from the silver, and the smith has material for a vessel. Take away the wicked from the presence of the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. So a wise ruler will not surround himself with wicked advisors, he removes them from his presence. How does this apply? Well, it's generally not difficult for us to recognize 
that we shouldn't elect leaders with bad ideas. But I find it's often far more difficult for people to recognize that we also shouldn't elect leaders with poor character. Lest we subject ourselves and our nation or our state or whatever we're talking about to unnecessary pain and sorrow. The ruler we most need is the person who demonstrates the ethics of wisdom. But because a wise ruler both understands the responsibility of leadership and demonstrates godly ethics, the combination of those two things, points one and two, ought to yield a ruler who finally, point number three, remains sober with power. A ruler who remains sober with power. Now, I'm sure you've seen it play out time and time again. The famous words of Lord Acton, which have proven true, that great men are almost always bad men because power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And friend, the Lord God does not wish his people to be naive about the corrupting influence of worldly power. It is wise to recognize both the nature and the danger of earthly power. Let me talk about the nature of power here a bit. Rulers have the power of life and death. Look at chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. Now such power is a fact of human reality. Leaders have power, and a wise person will seek to appease the king's wrath and to remain in the circle of the king's favor because the king has the power to take away the lives of those with whom he is wrathful. It is not wise for us to ignore the reality of power. And for this reason, we ought to be grateful for checks and balances on power, especially in the church when we talk about leadership in the church, where it is so easy to simply assume that everyone placed into leadership will act in a godly way. And this is one reason why our church has been eager to follow the instructions of the Apostle Paul to appoint a plurality of elders where no one person has the power to make all the decisions. What we need in both the church and in civil government, are rulers who recognize the value of checks and balances on power and those who gladly submit to such checks on their own power. And the way people mature into such submissive leaders, sounds like an oxymoron, but that's what the Bible wants, is submissive leaders... The way you mature into that is to recognize that there is a greater power than ourselves. Look at chapter 21, verse 1. The king's heart 
is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The Lord God alone has all authority in heaven and on earth. Sometimes human rulers might think they have all power, but the Lord just laughs at them as he turns their hearts this way and that to accomplish his purposes in the world. So please take note, the only pathway to true sobriety with power is to see oneself as soil or as clay in the hands of a higher power. Because then you'll recognize the fact that you'll never get away with abusing your power here on earth. You will one day have to answer to someone for your every decision and indiscretion. And brothers and sisters, even if you have no power yourself, you can still have access to real power if you seek it from the Lord and not from men. Because his power is absolute. It is ultimate. To give an example, our generation has been speaking and shouting quite a bit about justice for some time now. But I wonder, do most people really know how to get justice? Because we will never attain justice, I'm sorry to say, from elections or from legislation. And justice is not ultimately a product of protest or revolution. Look at chapter 29, verse 26. Many seek the face of a ruler, but... It is from the Lord that a man gets justice. So go ahead and petition human powers for justice. I'm not saying that's a bad thing to do. There are good reasons to do that and some progress can be made. But we must understand that in order to find real power for real justice... We will find it only from the Lord. And that means that our generation must repent of our sin and turn to God for justice. We cannot legislate justice, but we can access it when we repent of our sin and our foolishness. And we worship the one who created us in his image. What we most need is a wise king who will lead us to such repentance and faith. And when you have access to divine power for real justice, you can see through the foolishness and the deluded pretensions to power among human rulers. Look at chapter 23. This one's pretty funny. When you sit down to eat with a ruler... Observe carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. What is this talking about? Well, you, friend, might one day get an invitation to dine at the White House. And when you do, do not Let yourself be dazzled by all the pomp 
and prestige. And it doesn't even have to be the White House. Maybe you get an invitation to dine at the office of the president of Penn State University or whatever authoritative office it is. Because even if you could break bread with the president, that doesn't mean necessarily that you now have a voice to change the world. Having a seat at the table is a deceptive wish. Because the ruler's delicacies are deceptive food. The chief executive usually does not invite people into the Oval Office or to the White House brunch in order to help him do what is right. Okay, once in a while that might happen, but that's not normally the reason. He does it. He invites people there in order to butter them up, to get something out of them, perhaps to secure their vote or their endorsement on his agenda to consolidate power. So don't fall for the seduction of power. The seduction either to accumulate unlimited power for yourself or to get a seat at the table with these powerful appearing delicacies. Because then I can really make my voice heard. Because friends, real justice comes only from the Lord. So we need a king who will not get drunk with power, one who cannot be corrupted by it. It is possible for such a ruler to remain sober with power only if he repents of his own sin and leans entirely on the Lord Jesus. And if he recognizes that he himself lives in submission to a power much higher than his own a power to which he will one day be called to account. So when a wise leader is aware of their responsibility before God and they combine it with the ethical righteousness of God, only then do we have a chance of trusting that someone might remain uncorrupted by earthly power. Now, wouldn't it be great if we had such a ruler? If we had someone who spoke only truth and executed only justice. Someone who did not get drunk with power, but who saw himself completely under the authority of God's higher power. Friends, we need a wise king. We need a wise ruler. The book of Proverbs directed people to watch and to pray for such a ruler. And if we actually got him today as president of the United States... Perhaps he wouldn't have much trouble getting reelected to a second term when the nation thrives under his leadership. But even if we got such a ruler, the next book after Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, makes clear that all bets would be off with his successor. In fact, Ecclesiastes commands the people of God not to freak out when they see injustice. Because injustice is the natural result of a life lived in a fallen world. And Ecclesiastes says, the injustice that you can see is only the tip of the political iceberg. The injustice goes way deeper into the halls of power than you could ever imagine. 
So the full reality of life lived on earth involves two competing propositions. One is that we need a wise king. And two is it's really, really hard to find him. And if we ever do, he's not going to last very long. And so the people of God waited. And they watched and they prayed. Eventually, God sent them prophets to tell them that God knew of their need for a wise king and he was going to take care of it. They needed a wise and a righteous king who would remain sober with power and who would rule in righteousness and justice. And one of those prophets, Isaiah, came along and made them a staggering promise. Look at chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David. And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You see, what they needed was one of their own, a child born among them. One who could carry the responsibility of leadership on his shoulders and not be corrupted by it. Even when God increased his power without end. So the people kept watching and waiting and praying. Until a few centuries later, a divine messenger of the king of heaven showed up at the doorstep of a young woman engaged to be married. And that messenger told her that even though she was a virgin, she was going to give birth To a man child. Look at Luke chapter 1. That child will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And the king we all need finally came. She was to name him Jesus and he would reign as David's heir even down to today and forevermore. Now, because the governments of the ancient world could not handle a king with such wisdom and righteousness, they killed him. But death could not hold him. And so he rose after three days and he demonstrated the ethics of wisdom. He showed the world his integrity to handle the responsibility given to him by the father until he eventually ascended with the clouds of heaven to arrive before the throne of the ancient of days and to receive from him a kingdom that will have no end. Friends, Jesus is the final king who will reign forever in righteousness and justice under his rule god's people thrive and they are filled with joy and peace in trusting 
And all rulers among men will forever have to live up to and will themselves be judged by Jesus' righteous standard. We need a wise king. And we will not find him in the next presidential election. The best we can hope for there is a candidate who proclaims his or her own inadequacy compared to the true king of heaven and earth. That sure would be something, wouldn't it? And may the Lord Jesus Christ have mercy on us to grant us more rulers who will not get drunk with power, but will execute their responsibility in righteousness and justice, just like the Lord who created them and will one day judge them. Let us pray for more rulers who will themselves bow before the one who rules them so that our land would have greater justice and joy and peace and that the church would remain free to preach the good news of Jesus, the only wise King. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we need a king, and his name is Jesus. And we need more leaders who are like Jesus and who look to him and who submit to him. We ask that you would please have mercy on our city, on our county, on our state, on our country, on our world. And we ask that you would grant us wise rulers who will profess their inadequacies and look to the King of Heaven and that they will be held in check by their commitment to you and their knowledge that they will be judged themselves. Help us to become the sort of people who would be worthy of positions of authority that we might represent you in these ways. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.